We're reading from Genesis chapter 25 and the first 18 verses. Now Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Now Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Lechishites, and the Lumites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldah. All these were the descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. While he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite. The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. And after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahoi Roy. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's slave Hagar, the Egyptian, born to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Juma, Massa, Hadad, Tamar, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers, according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go towards Asher. And they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. Thanks, Roger. Well read, <laughs> all those names. Probably didn't expect coming to church that uh, you'd be looking at a bunch of uh, <laughs> weird-sounding names, uh, genealogies. But here at church, we believe uh, that the Bible, uh, all of the Bible, is God's Word, spoken uh, and inspired by Him. And so it's important for us to be across uh, even the details of genealogies like this. So before we take a closer look at that, I'm going to pray and ask God uh, that he would help us to see what he wants to say to us through this part of his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the ways that you have revealed yourself in and through uh, your interactions with your ancient people down through the centuries. We thank you also that those interactions were recorded in the Bible that we have before us. We thank you also that That Bible has been faithfully translated in many languages, including our own in English, such that we can read it together now. Please help us by the same spirit that inspired the writing of these words to help us see what you are saying to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Funerals 
are uh, interesting things. I don't know if you've been to many. I have. I've attended quite a few. Uh, and what I've noticed of the funerals that I've been at uh, is that the things spoken and unspoken at someone's funeral, uh, they tend to be a little bit louder than normal, just a little bit more significant. And I think it's because it's the ending of a story. A funeral, in a lot of ways, uh, it's the postscript or an essential part of the final chapter of someone's life, right? Uh, it's the ending of a story, of, of someone's story. And the end of someone's story, that's significant. Not just for that person, but for the way that their story then informs and furthers the plot of the ongoing stories of the lives of those left behind as they are left to figure out uh, what the script for their life should be going forward. You know, maybe looking for some unifying theme, some plot line or, or trace to trace through the grief and loss and life in the face of death. Something to, gra- to grab hold of and uh, find some meaning in. It's a little bit like uh, that famous film, classic 1994 movie, Four Weddings and a Funeral, where the uh, characters, the main characters, they endure often tortuous exchanges at a number of weddings as love either goes wrong or it's abused or it's missed, uh, for it then to truly take the stage, for love to take the stage and shine at a funeral, uh, in the words of a passionate and poetic declaration of love for the dead man now lost. But in so doing, in that film, it sets the bar for the living left behind to, to be true to love themselves. And similarly, that's what's going on here in Genesis. Uh, it's as we come to the end of someone's story, the life and story of Abraham, significant dude. He dies. Uh, and his special son, Isaac, and his estranged son, Ishmael, they come together to bury him. It would have been a fascinating, it would have been fascinating to be at that funeral as both of those boys gave their eulogies, uh, you know, and, shared some of their thoughts on their dad. But what's more, I think, even more fascinating, uh, is that, of course, God was present at that funeral, and in some ways, the passage that we have before us, that we had read earlier, uh, is God's eulogy. It's his good word. That's what eulogy means, good word. Uh, we have God's good word on the significance of Abraham's life. And it's there in this passage uh, for those of us who are left behind. To hear. And like four weddings and a funeral, it's got a lot to do with love. But unlike four weddings and a funeral, it sets the bar for for love profoundly higher. So that's where we're going uh, with this part of the Bible today. Firstly, we're going to see God keeping his promises as a sign of his love. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see uh, his big promises to Abraham are his special love. And Thirdly, his smaller promises to Ishmael, we'll see is a sign of his general love for all people. And finally, how those of us who know God's special love should then love those who don't. So, first up, God's promises and uh, his love. Because uh, so far in the story of Genesis, if you've been uh, reading along uh, and studying it in your growth groups, uh, it's been mostly about God's big promise, all his big promises to Abraham. 
uh, about the ways in which uh, Abraham believes and acts on those promises, but also threatens them with stupid behaviour. Uh, but nonetheless, we see God's faithful. He faithfully keeps his promises, which is rightly understood throughout uh, the Bible as his love. And with the death of Abraham in this passage, we see God continue to keep his promises, big and small, and in this we see continue to see his love shine forth. Many think love is a passionate and gushy feeling that leaves you weak at the knees, knees or makes your heart skip a beat, but that could just be an aneurysm. But there's no mistake, when a husband or a wife sticks with each other through thick and thin, as they promised they would at the altar, as they made promises to each other, there's no mistake, as they stick at those promises, that we see true love there. And it's that kind of love that God is showing and that he shows. He keeps his promises through thick and thin. He keeps his big promises and he keeps his small promises. He shows his special love for some and he shows his general love for all. So, second point, God's special love. As mentioned, uh, God made big promises with Abraham and to Abraham. Uh, He promised he'd bless Abraham and make him great, make his name great. Uh, He promised to make his family uh, into a great nation. Uh, He promised to give his descendants the promised land of Canaan. Uh, He promised that he would be forever their God and that they would be his special people. And he promised to bless the whole world through them. And we've seen this has already started to happen in the story of Genesis. Uh, God's blessed Abraham with heaps of wealth. He started to settle him in the promised land. He's given him a miraculous son, Isaac, to his barren wife, Sarah. And as we saw last week in chapter 24, God secured the what he secured the right wife for Isaac. So we see the big promises to Abraham, they're rolling on to fulfillment. And Abraham rightly passes it all on to Isaac. As we read earlier in verse 5, Abraham left everything that he owned to Isaac and he sends all the other sons away, verse 6, to guard Isaac's inheritance for him. And it seems God honours that decision. So in verse 11 we see after Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac. Despite the fact that Abraham had many, many other kids, and many other sons with their sons, as we saw in the previous verses in this passage, which is a big deal back then uh, with the inheritance rights and all that. But no, it's, it's not the oldest that's getting the inheritance here, like Ishmael or possibly Zimran there in verse 1. Uh, it's not the one with the most impressive line of sons themselves, like Jokshan in, in verse 3. It's, it's the promised son to Sarah, the miracle son, Isaac that over and above others, God blesses. And looks to establish the big promises that he made to Abraham with, as he said he would uh, earlier in Genesis. So in chapter 17, he says this to Abraham, I will establish my covenant with him, that is with Isaac, your son, your promised son, as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And God Keeps his big promises to Abraham through his son Isaac to especially bless him. 
And in all this, we see God shows his special love, a love that will continue to shine as he fulfills his big promises to Abraham through Isaac and then through Isaac's son, Jacob, and then through Jacob's sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, and eventually and finally through his greatest son, his greatest descendant, Jesus Christ, because it's through Jesus and faith in his death for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life that many, many people will come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as their God, as the one true God, and they as his special people, deeply and eternally loved. In uh, Kids Church at the moment, uh, the kids are doing a memory verse from the Bible that uh, goes to this point. It's from Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, that's a bit of a mashup of uh, CEV and NEV translations of the Bible. Uh, it's part of what the Apostle Peter tells the crowd at Passover in Jerusalem uh, way back when. And to help the kids remember this passage, this memory verse, uh, they've been doing it in sign language, which I thought it uh, would be cool uh, for us to give a crack together now. Who's up for some sign language? Yeah? Awesome. All right, I've got some takers. Excellent. All right, so it goes a little bit like this. I'm going to do it, and then we're going to do it together afterwards, all right? Don't laugh. I'm going to get it right. <laughs> okay, here we go. So the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and our other ancestors worshipped has glorified his servant, Jesus. Eh? <laughs> I got it. You reckon you can do it? Okay. Or it's easy. God. That's a G. God. Right. The God that... Now, this is Abraham. Abraham. Isaac. And, like a J, Jacob. And our other ancestors... Worship has glorified his servant, Jesus. That one's cool, right? Yeah. It's good, isn't it? Well done, people. Congratulations. You're now up to speed with the kids' church. <laughs> the point being, uh, any who accept that God glorified Jesus, glorified him by raising him from physically from the dead, for the forgiveness of sin. Any who believe that, any who accept that, they've inherited God's big promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They've inherited the blessings to Isaac. They've inherited that special relationship with God that'll stretch into eternity. They're God's special sons and special daughters, deeply and eternally loved by him. So, if you're listening to this and you don't know God's love for you, but you want to. Please, can I encourage you to consider Jesus? Consider him again. Because if you accept that he died in your place to make you right with God, if you accept that he suffered for your stuff-ups and your brokenness, then you can know God loves you specially loves you. You can know that he's forgiven you. You can know 
that he's redeemed you, that he's saved you from fear and death. He's adopted you into his family. You can know all this and you can know his special and eternal love for you, that you are his special child, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is your God and you are his people as you trust in Jesus. You can know his special love. Because it's in this, as people trust in Jesus, that we see God's big promises fulfilled. And so we see, as that happens, as people trust in Jesus, that God's special love is still at work in the world. But we also see that his general love for all people uh, is still at work in the world. And this uh, goes to the third point. While we might know God's special love in Jesus, we also see his general love for all people. Like to Ishmael and his descendants in uh, the passage that we're looking at today. Because because God keeps his smaller promises to them. A little bit of a quick backstory for Ishmael. Ishmael is the son of Abraham to his wife, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, because Sarah couldn't have kids and was getting old. She was anxious to have a child. And so she organised for Hagar to sleep with her husband, uh, Abraham, uh, to get a child for her. But after Hagar gets pregnant and has Ishmael, things don't go so well. Uh, Hagar starts to rub it in, Sarah gets jealous, and so Sarah boots Hagar and Ishmael out of the home uh, to go and wander in the desert to die. But God appears to Hagar and he makes a promise, a promise that he reiterates to Abraham, where he says this, As for Ishmael, this is what God says, I've heard you, Abraham, I will surely bless him, I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I'll make him into a great nation. And then fast forward to chapter 25 here from verse 12, we see God keeps that promise. After detailing a bunch of names beautifully read by Roger earlier, uh, we, we read in verse 16, these were the sons of Ishmael and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. So God keeps his promises. And while it's clear that this passage wants us to see that there's a difference between the promises passed on to Isaac and the promises to Ishmael, that his love for Isaac is uh, extra special, it's important to see that, that God still loves Ishmael. He still loves those who are not his special people in that sense, as he keeps his word to them as well. And the simple fact is nothing's changed. He still loves all people as he keeps his word. We read elsewhere in the Bible that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He made the the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The word became flesh, the man Jesus Christ. And so rightly the Apostle Paul can say of him, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The Son of God, the Word come in flesh. In him all things were created. They were created through him and for him. In him all things hold together. 
the good of this world and of this life. The visible, like rain and sunshine and animals and our bodies. The invisible, like friendship and conscience and love. Powers and authorities and institutions like government and marriage and property, these are all a gift from Jesus. Created by him and held together in him. Human life flourishes on this planet only because of Jesus. In Jesus then, God's word in flesh, as the Bible describes him, we see God give and sustain all life by his word. In Jesus then, we see God's general love for all people. And so as those who know this God in Jesus and know him to be the kind of God that he is, a God who gives life and good things and all good things and loves all people, even when they use and abuse him or ignore him, we should look to love as he does in this passage. Which brings us to our final point. Like God, we should love people. By firstly seeing them to love them and then seeing them as an important part of God's story. Because God sees them, we should see them. As those trusting in Jesus, if anyone in this passage is going to represent us, it'll be Isaac, right? After all, in Jesus, we're the ones inheriting all God's promises fulfilled to Abraham and blessed by him. So it's worth noting where Isaac settles in this passage. You may have picked it up, it's there in verse 11. God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Be'er Lahai Roy. Uh, Be'er Lahai Roy, that's the name of a well. Uh, A well that commemorates the name Hagar gave God. You might remember the story back in chapter 16, as mentioned earlier. Uh, Sarah boots Hagar and Ishmael out there, out in the desert about to die, and God comes to comfort Hagar. He points out a well to her, uh, promises to give her son, Ishmael, many descendants. And then we read this. It is beautiful. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. Lahai Roy, it means the one who sees me, the living one who sees me. And then back here in chapter 25, we see Isaac dwelling near there. Near where God said to be the one who sees me. Sees those who are not blessed like Isaac sees those who are not his special people. Now, I suspect uh, the general sense of God seeing people is not a comforting one. I imagine some might think of the all-seeing eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings saga, that lidless eye of fire uh, that's malevolently intent on finding the ring of power so as to rule everyone in fear and judgment. And many might imagine God being all-seeing in this kind of way, you know, watching people with crossed arms and a disapproving look quick to condemn and judge. But that's not the picture the Bible gives us of God. That's that's the opposite of why Hagar calls him the one who sees me. It's because he's looking to care for her. And in and through Jesus, we see he's the creator, looking to bless and comfort and give life to all people. And in this way, he's the one 
who sees all people, indeed all of creation, to see life flourish. In Jesus, he sees all people to love them. And so should we. As those who know God's immense love in Jesus, we should look to love like him, to see people flourish by praying for them and their success, by affirming the life that God's lovingly given them, even if they ruin it and abuse it in various ways, to nonetheless affirm and promote the good things in their lives by by thanking God for their success and for their health and their happiness, by celebrating their wins and enjoying along with them the good things that God's given them, and out of love for them to do good for them and to work at upholding the good things that God's given in this world for them. There's a movement called Common Grace that looks to love people by working towards a more just world. Maybe check out their website. You might find some helpful ways to love people well in our world there. Because we know God's love in Jesus. We'll look to those who don't. We'll see them. To love them as God does. And as we do this, we'll see them as an important part of God's story for us. It's worth noting that the story of Abraham's life, it gets wrapped up with a note of God's love to Ishmael, not Isaac. Now we're going to get into Isaac's story uh, in a big way from the rest of this chapter on. But is it any accident that God's eulogy on Abraham ends on a note about his love for the estranged son and his descendants? that it ends on his love for those who are even hostile to God's special people, as hinted there in verse 18? Could it be that God deliberately ends the story of Abraham here for the original readers of Genesis, the Israelites, to maybe correct any bad attitude they might have had towards the descendants of Ishmael? That since God cares for them, they should too, and maybe there's something here for us as well as we think of those who are not believing in Jesus, who are unmoved by him, or even hostile towards him, and maybe even us, that seeing them, to love them, is actually an important part of God's story for us. Certainly the case, they were certainly an important part of the Apostle Paul's life, as he writes... Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Knowing God and his special love in Jesus changed Paul's thinking when it came to others in the world. He could no longer regard them from a worldly point of view. He he, he saw them now from God's point of view, as though that God loves and that God wants to be a part of his story in Jesus. And he was compelled to try and to persuade them to tell them about Jesus, even later on in that chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, to beg them to reconcile to God through Jesus, and to be praying for them and praying for opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. 
And maybe we can take a leaf out of Paul's book here as he reflects the heart of God in this passage in Genesis of seeing those who don't know Jesus as an important part of God's story for us. And so to be prayerfully and winsomely and lovingly commending Jesus to them, even when, maybe especially when, they're hostile towards God and and maybe even us. Because although we might not know who Jesus is preparing a place for in his father's house, we do know there are many rooms, as Jesus said. So as those who know God's special love in Jesus, we know God's general love for all people, and as such, we should see them as God sees them and love them as God loves them. See them as God does to love them and as an important part of God's story for us as we commend the love of Jesus to them. So, who can you see in your life? Who is it in your life that doesn't know Jesus who you can love and affirm and pray for? Uh, Maybe it's that person who really doesn't like you And maybe you don't like them that much either, but you know you should love them. Maybe it's that friend or family member who used to come to church, but has moved on. Maybe it's that down-and-out neighbour who's struggling to make ends meet. Maybe it's that group of disenfranchised people that you've got to know. Maybe it's that work colleague or fellow student who's always having a go at you. Maybe it's your best friend. Uh, Whoever it is, could today be the day that you see them as God does or see them afresh as God does to love them and to make them more a part of God's story in your life. I'm going to pray to that end now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a faithful, good God who keeps his promises. We thank you that you have kept your big promises to Abraham, passed on through to Isaac and Jacob, fulfilled wonderfully in the person and work of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that our faith in Jesus is a sign of your special love for us and we can be confident that we are deeply and eternally loved by you in him. Please, as those who know this special love, help us to see and acknowledge your love for all people and to work at affirming that love in the way that we treat those around about us, seeking their good, and so commending to them the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus and your incredible love for us in and through him. Father, we think of those that we know and love, that we hang around with, that rub shoulders with, that we live near, that you would soften their hearts, that you would grant them an insight into their need 
for your love in Jesus and that you would give us the opportunity to share that love and that you would save them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.